Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. We are deep into our study of the Gospel of John. We're in season one. This is episode 50, if you can believe that. And so we're in John 20, just having looked at the crucifixion on the last episode. Now we're moving on to the resurrection stories, and then we'll finish up with John's words as he ends this great gospel. Um, I do want to say I really appreciate you being a part of uh, this podcast, and if you'd like to become a financial supporter, I would really appreciate it. Uh, You can see how to do that in the program notes, and if you do become a financial supporter, please send me your email address, and I'll put you on our list to receive the weekly copies of the podcast script. So as we're thinking about this, what is this good news for the imperfect? What exactly is that? Well, the Apostle Paul defined it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Jesus raised from the dead. That's of first or utmost importance. That's the touchstone of the gospel. Without an empty tomb, friends, Jesus is just another dead philosopher. It's his empty grave that makes our salvation possible. But remarkably, the very first news of Easter was not good news at all. It was experienced as terrible news. The news that Mary Magdalene brought to the Apostle Peter and John and the other disciples when she came running with the announcement that the body of Jesus had disappeared. What a shock that must have been. Now, you might not know this, but an attempt was made in the year 1876 to steal the body of Abraham Lincoln and to hold it for ransom. The plot failed. Somebody ratted them out. The criminals were apprehended by the Secret Service. At first, Lincoln's body was then reburied in an unmarked grave to keep it safe from other grave robbers. Eventually, Lincoln's body was buried in Springfield, Illinois, in a coffin encased in a steel cage set into tons of concrete. They were going to take the chance that anybody would steal his body again. But when the news of the attempted corpse caper got out to the entire nation, I mean, everybody was just shocked and dismayed. We can only imagine the shock of these disciples of Jesus, smitten and numbed as they already were at the unexpected death of their Lord, when they heard Mary's breathless announcement. The Apostle John did not write this account of the events of the resurrection until more than 50 years after they had taken place. And yet this narrative, it's so vivid and so fresh as if it had been had occurred, and it just puts us right there. So let's hear John's words, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. 
Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher or my teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Outside the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem today, in a beautiful secluded garden at the foot of the hill that's shaped like a skull, Golgotha, there is a tomb called the Garden Tomb. No one is exactly sure that this is the tomb where the body of Jesus lay, but it fits the picture much better than the tomb that is under the roof of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre with the somber darkness of that cathedral. And it's a shame that to this day, three different Christian groups still squabble over who has the right to control the touristy site. All that is so far removed from the simplicity of the events John records here. According to the other gospel accounts, other women were with Mary when she went to the tomb that early morning. And when they arrived there, probably around 5 or 5.30 a.m., just as the sun was beginning to rise, they saw that the great stone that weighed probably over a thousand pounds that rolled along a track in front of the tomb, this great stone had been pushed away. Shocked by this discovery, we're told here in John, Mary left the other women there and ran to tell Peter and John that the tomb had been opened. The guard had deserted his post and the body of Jesus had disappeared. According to the gospel accounts, the other women stayed, and there they met two angels who told them that Jesus had risen. But Mary had not yet received that news when she ran to tell Peter and John about the disappearance of the body of Jesus. Peter and John immediately take off for the tomb, running through the streets of Jerusalem, through the Damascus Gate, and out to the tomb. Of course, John, who was the younger of the two, adds the little details that you know he had to outrun Peter, and he stooped down to look into the tomb first. The garden tomb was a fairly large chamber, hewed out of rock, three rock shelves for bodies. And as he peered in, John observed the burial cloth still lying on the rock shelf where the body of Jesus had lain. He does not tell us what he thought at that moment, but it seems like there came this flashing into his mind, the realization that Mary was wrong. It looked as though the body was still there. The cloths were still lying where they were supposed to be from his vantage point. Peering into the tomb as he stooped down, it would have looked as though the body was still there. And perhaps this accounts for the fact that he did not immediately enter the tomb. But not Peter. Bold and brash Peter, when he arrived at the tomb, puffing and gasping, holding his side from his early morning jog, 
With that characteristic impetuosity, he entered the tomb. Inside he saw the burial cloths, which John had seen lying there undisturbed. But he also saw the napkin, which had been around the head of Jesus, but it was lying in a place neatly folded by itself. Now, at this point, I just want to answer the question, you know, was this the Shroud of Turin? Maybe you're familiar with the story or the, the uh, investigation into this cloth, the Shroud of Turin. The story of this ancient shroud dates back to the 13th century, at least, and it has imprinted on it the impression of the body of a man, the head, the torso, the limbs, even the beard somehow impregnated the material of the shroud in like a reverse image, it almost resembles like a photograph, so that the features are clearly visible. Now, some people passionately believe that this was the shroud that lay over the body of Jesus. Somehow they say the mystery, the magnificence, the power of the resurrection, it left an impression on the features uh, of the features of the body of Jesus on the cloth. Sort of like an explosion of light imprinted the, the uh, shroud. Others say it's someone else's shroud, and others think it's just a total fake. And you can you do your own research on that. But notice the detail John gives, which clearly proves that the shroud of Turin could not have been the cloth that covered the body. Both John and Peter saw that the napkin which covered the head of Jesus was a separate piece of cloth from the wrappings that covered the rest of the body. In fact, in Matthew's gospel makes clear that when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea prepared the body for burial, they wrapped it in linen strips, not one single piece of cloth which would constitute the Shroud of Turin. And so based on these two significant details in scripture, with Matthew and John including their accounts, we sort of have to conclude that the Shroud, as remarkable and mysterious as it is, it's not the cloth that covered the body of Jesus. At this point, John enters the tomb. According to his own account, when he saw these cloths, then he believed. And we have to ask, well, what did he believe? On reading this, most people think that John believed that Jesus had indeed been raised from the dead, that the cloths lying there hollow and sunken in as though the body had just sort of gone through them and disappeared, sort of like beaming out from on a Star Trek movie. The cloths were not ripped or disturbed in any way, so the body did not awaken and tear off its grave clothes, and neither did anyone else unwrap the body and take the corpse. What they saw was enough to put Peter and John into a kind of mental limbo. Mary was right, the body wasn't there. And the only explanation logically was that someone had stolen the body. That's what they were believing at that point. They were believing Mary. They did not put all the pieces together yet because right after that in verse uh, that verse, John immediately adds, they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So they initially believed that the body had been moved or stolen. That being the case, there was nothing for them to do but to go home. And that's what they did. It says, then the disciples went back to where they had been staying. Now Mary here enters the picture again. She had returned to the tomb following the apostles, with the apostles, but had remained outside, convinced that her Lord was dead and his body had been stolen. Then, looking in, she saw the two young men, angels, we read, sitting inside. Woman, why are you weeping? they asked her. In the early light of dawn, they seemed to be looking, maybe not at her, but at, some, at someone behind her. And so turning, we're told, she saw a man standing there whom she took to be the gardener who asked her the same question, woman, why are you weeping? And there's a gentle kind of rebuke inherent in this twice asked question. It's saying, you know, this isn't the time for weeping, but rejoicing, praise and thanksgiving. 
It implies that she could and should have known that Jesus was resurrected. I mean, Jesus had clearly said that numerous times as the Gospels record for us, that he would rise again on the third day. One of the striking phenomena of the Gospels is the deafness of the disciples to the consistent revelations of Jesus concerning his resurrection. He had great difficulty convincing them that he was going to die in the first place. It was only as they saw the opposition closing in on him that they realized his words were true. But even then, none of them seemed to grasp that every time he mentioned his death, he also added that he would rise again on the third day. Now, Mary was just like us. I mean, have you ever found yourself in a distressing circumstance when the sky seemed to become crashing down and the Christian that you are, you still immediately forget about all the promises of God? Maybe you're feeling sorry for yourself or you become anxious and upset. I mean, I know I have. And we so quickly forget the clear promises of God. The great reformer Martin Luther once spent three days in a deep, dark, black depression over something that had gone wrong. And on the third day, his wife came down dressed in her mourning clothes, dressed all in black. Who's dead? Luther asked her. God, she replied. And Luther rebuked her, saying, what do you mean? God isn't dead. God cannot die. Well, his wife replied, the way you've been acting lately, I was sure he had. Aren't wives great? We need them to correct us often. Many of us have been caught in that trap. This is also what had happened to Mary. But Jesus has to speak but one word to her to open her eyes. With indescribable tenderness, he simply utters her name. Not Mary, which is what is recorded in the account here, but the Aramaic version, Miriam. Mary instantly recognized his voice, just as any one of us would recognize the loved one's voice on the telephone. Responding in Aramaic, Mary flung herself at his feet and cried, Rabboni, which means teacher or literally my teacher. She seized him by the feet and began to weep tears of joy. According to the account, Jesus gently disengages himself, saying, Don't cling to me now, you know, for I have not yet ascended to my father. There's a lot of theological guesswork that goes on into the meaning of what Jesus was saying here. Some have even suggested that before he made an appearance to anyone else, that he first ascended to the Father, and at this point he came back again, and then he went up and he came back. I mean, this is kind of pure speculation. There's nothing in Scripture to really substantiate that. We know from the other Gospels that 40 days would elapse before he ascends to the Father. He would appear several times to the disciples in Jerusalem that afternoon to two on the road to Emmaus, and then that evening in the secluded room to all of the eleven except Thomas, and then to Thomas a little later on. He appeared to Peter several times. He appeared to all of them 70 miles away at the Lake of Galilee. Over 500 of the believers saw him on the mountainside all at the same time. After the disciples had returned to Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, 40 days after his resurrection, they saw Jesus literally ascend up into the heavens until a cloud, a cloud received him out of their sight. It was then that he ascended to the Father. What does Jesus mean in these words to Mary? Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Well, many have noted that he makes a clear distinction between his relationship to the Father and theirs. Neither they nor we can say, my father, in the same way that Jesus could say, my father. Neither the disciples nor we can say, my God, 
in the same way that Jesus could say, my God. Yet it was the same God and the same Father. You see, his relationship as son is different from our relationship as sons and daughters. For he was a son by nature, and we are by adoption. Let me say that again. He was a son by nature. We are all sons and daughters by adoption. But why does he not permit Mary to cling to him? He was saying to her, Mary, a new relationship has come into being. I'm no longer going to continue with you in close physical contact. Touching me gives you comfort. I understand that. But it will no longer be that way because I'm going to ascend to the Father. As we know from the Upper Room Discourse, from there he would send the Spirit, who would then make himself available in a more wonderful and closer way than ever before to all believers everywhere. What he is saying is, when I ascend to the Father, my nearness to you will be complete. Now go and tell my my brothers. He says brothers, not disciples. He says, go and tell my brothers that same truth. Well, this is the gospel wabi-sabi, God's good news for imperfect people. I believe this is the first and the chief good news of Jesus that we celebrate every day, but in a special way on Easter Sunday. Most celebrate Easter as a reminder that there's hope on the day when they will have to leave this earth, that Easter means because he lives, we shall also live in the afterlife. Because he has ascended, we shall ascend. And that's a legitimate part of the message of Easter. It does give us a a glorious hope that when we face death's door, you know, there'll be someone on the other side. And someone once said that there are three questions we all have to ask ourselves. Where do I come from? Why am I here? And is it really necessary for me to leave? Most of us wish we didn't have to say yes to that third question. But that is not what comforted Mary or any of the disciples at this point. It never crossed their minds that this event would give them a hope in the hour of their death. What brought them kind of delirious gladness of heart was the realization that Jesus is back again. We haven't lost him. He's right here. He's with us right now. And he will always be with us. You see the difference? The gospel good news is not just about what awaits us in heaven when we die. It's good news for right now. And how we live in this world, in this life, with all its ups and downs and triumphs and tragedies. This is the truly good news of Easter. Though through 2,000 years of Christian witness, what has sustained the hearts of millions and millions of people is the realization that Jesus can enter into one's life and go with you through the trials, the pressures, the tears, the joys of life right here, right now on earth. He will be with you in the hour of your death. Yes, for sure, absolutely. But not as a stranger. Do you get that? When we encounter Jesus at the time of our death, he won't be a stranger. At death, Jesus will already have long been a trusted friend, a gracious guide, a sustaining power, not merely some comforting companion in our death, but right now, We experience Jesus as our Lord, our sovereign, the authoritative one over us, who enables us to, who is able to work through us in touching the difficulties that others face. No one wants to face pressures all alone. It helps to have someone with you. Now, not only someone like yourself, one who can understand how you feel, but if it can also be someone who has authority and power one who can work out solutions to your seemingly unsolvable problems, 
What a comfort that is. The good news of the gospel is that because he has risen, we can give up our feeble attempts at trying to be like God and control life or control the future on our own. The good news is that we can give up the anxiety that we have in trying to make sure everything works out just the way we want it to work. Have you ever calculated how much worry we spend trying to make sure this or that happens in our lives or in the lives of someone else? If we could only finally recognize the fact that we are not God, that life is more mysterious than we have ever thought, that the events are out of our control, but they're also under God's control, that God is bigger than anything that we've ever imagined and more loving than we could ever dream. Wouldn't then we be able to relax and just trust that he's in control? He is risen. It means that God, with God, all things are possible. It feels so good to finally come to the point in life when you know for certain that Christ has risen because you realize you don't have to be God. You don't have to be in control of everything. The uncertainties that we face in life are not uncertain in God's eyes. He sees it all. And Jesus coming out of that grave proves that God can do something about it. Now, it's interesting to note that according to John, Mary was the first to carry this message of new life in Christ's name. Jesus said to Mary, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary was the first apostle. The word apostle means sent one, and she was the very first one that Jesus trusted or commissioned to carry the message of the resurrection. She was the first one sent with the message of resurrection and hope. The risen Christ comes with his living power and his living presence. God's kingdom is here, and Mary had the privilege of sharing that news first. Now later, Jesus gives the same mission to the other disciples when we get down to verse 21, where it says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Mary and the disciples were to pick up where Jesus left off. They were sent as ambassadors of a new kingdom. They were sent to bring healing for the hurting, light for the darkness, and beauty transforming ugliness, to bring order out of the chaos, justice to corruption, wholeness for the broken, joy displacing sadness. And I like the way that Jesus' first words to the women and to the disciples were peace, don't be afraid. Because of course they were afraid. We would be afraid. Of course they felt inadequate for the job. You can imagine all their excuses rising to the surface. Well, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what I'm dealing with. I'm not ready. I don't know enough. What are others going to think of me? I haven't been living my life right yet. Now people will just think I'm a hypocrite. It could affect my career, my finances, or bring stress to my relationships. And on and on and on the, ex the excuses flow. Into all their fears and hesitations and reasons why not, why they didn't want to step into being sent, into all their fears, he says that one word, peace, peace. Jesus sees in Mary and in the disciples incredible kingdom potential if they could only see it for themselves. That's why he breathes on them, he, his spirit. He tells them to receive the gift of the spirit, and then he sends them out. We'll do it together is really what Jesus is saying. We'll do it together. The Great Commission is a co-mission. We'll do it together. You see, the true Christian faith cannot be contained in the vague religious language of our day. People like the idea of a God, but only if you keep it very, very vague. But when you start saying Christ is risen, that kind of pops all those, all the religions are essentially the same balloon. Christ is risen. That's 
very specific. It's too specific because it makes, therefore, a demand on our lives. If Christ has been risen, then he hasn't cannot be seen as being just equal with other religious great leaders. He is exceedingly above. And we need to pay attention to everything he taught. And what he taught so clearly was that he was the one and only path to God. And that requires a response from each of us. A lot of people still don't get the message of Christ and need and our, and our need for his grace. You may remember the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, once described all the good things he had done and all the social causes he had championed, all the money he had given. And he was quoted by the New York Times as saying, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Man, he does not get it at all. He doesn't understand. The good news of the gospel is not only can you know him, but you can be close to you all the time. Through every situation, the risen Lord offers to share his victory with you, to take you through whatever you must face as your close and competent companion who will never, never, ever leave you. Some of us may have to face you know, serious problems this week. Some may confront what looks like the end of a hope or a dream. There might be fears or anxieties or loneliness or emptiness or heartache or just sorrow. But the good news of, of Easter and the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to face any of that alone. That's the promise that millions have trusted, that they've asked Jesus to enter into their lives, to come and dwell with them in their hearts, to go with them through life, not only through death. To their joy, they found that every word of Jesus is true. You know, there's a worship chorus, which you may know, remember, it's a, my prayer that I hope you will find it to be true for you today. I won't sing it. I'll just uh, read the lines for you. It goes like this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future, that life is worth the living, just because he lives. Have a great week.